Let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 29. And while you're um, turning, I'm going to give a quick review. Chapters 25 to 32. As you look at this map, this is uh, chapter 25 through 28. And what it is, is the fulfillment of Jeremiah and Ezekiel's prophecy that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, which was the world ruling empire at this time, would come against Jerusalem, destroy the city, destroy the temple. And as a result, we have cities like Tyre actually gloating uh, that Jerusalem has fallen. So we have judgments against Edom and Moab and Ammon and Tyre and Sidon. And uh, from chapters 25 to 28, here's a picture of this time frame. Now, this is going to tie into our study tonight because the amount of time that, that, Alex, uh, that um, Alexander the Great spent in, um, I'm going to make sure it's, uh, no, it would have been Nebuchadnezzar. The amount of effort and time it took in destroying Tyre because it was such a glorious city, we're going to read in 29 tonight that he takes on Egypt to take its spoils and its money so he could actually finance uh, his military in the taking of, of Tyre. We're, we're sort of going to begin with that. So anyway, here's a picture of 25 through 28. What Jeremiah and Ezekiel have said has come to pass, proving all the false prophets wrong. The next picture is um, 29 through 32. Those will be the chapters we'll be going through tonight. And basically, um, there's Egypt. Um, We're going to be zeroing in on the city of Memphis. It's not called Memphis here, but I'll uh, point out the name of the city here in, in Ezekiel which is next to Cairo, and basically the line drawn there is really the exodus that would have taken place during the time of Moses. So I'm putting these maps up just in a way of refreshing our memory as we get back into, you have 25, 26, 27, 28, you have four chapters given to the fall of um, Tyre, Sidon, Ammon, Moab, and Edom, and you have... 29, 30, 31, 32, four whole chapters just given to um, Nebuchadnezzar's taking of, of Egypt. The name Egypt occurs 612 times in the Bible, in some 500 plus verses. And um, it is predominant. Um, it was the first world conquering empire. And the beginning of, of um, uh, after the flood, I should say, of course, <clears throat> Babel would have been one of the major cities um, after the flood. But rising as they dispersed, we find over time that the first great uh, empire is actually Egypt. So let's dive in. But because Sunday... Our text was taken from 29, and we pretty much covered up to verse 15. And the main point of these verses is, yes, once you were 
the glory of the world. But in verse 15 and 14, it says, I will bring back the captives of Egypt from Babylon after 40 years, cause them to return to the land of of Phathros, to the land of their origin, and they will be a lowly kingdom. And it shall be the lowest of kingdoms. It shall never exalt itself above the nations again. So after the um, Egyptian empire, conquered by the Assyrians, we know that, again, the Assyrians uh, fell in one night when they, during the time of um, Isaiah and Hezekiah, um, they came against Jerusalem. But one angel, um, because of the prayer of Hezekiah, um, and a prophecy from Isaiah saying, don't worry about a thing, nothing's going to happen. Uh, one angel took out 185,000 Syrian troops. Their king, Sennacherib, went back to Assyria. He was killed by his two sons. And you have the demise of the Assyrian Empire. And now you have the rise of the Babylonian Empire. And that's what we have in view here tonight. We have Babylon at its height, of its glory, of its conquest. And as we trace world history, the Bible is always correct and accurate to the nth degree. We made a big point of that when we studied Tyre. In two verses, we have, in the first part of it, um, Nebuchadnezzar destroying Tyre. And in the very next verse, some 300 years later, we have Alexander the Great finishing the job by building that causeway out from uh, Tyre being on the mainland uh, to the island. So with that much of a background, let's pick it up. It's diminished. Now verses 17 through 21 of 29, because we pretty much covered the first 15 verses. It says, it'll come to pass in the 27th year in the first month, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, now, son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, caused his army to labor strenuously against Tyre. And we had a whole chapter just on Tyre. Every head was made bald and every shoulder rubbed raw. In other words, he worked hard. Yet neither he nor his army received wages for Tyre for the labor which they expended on it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take away her wealth, carry off her spoil, remove her pillage, and that will be the wages of his army. I have given them the land of Egypt for their, his labor because they worked for me, says the Lord. <clears throat> In that day I will cause the horn of the house of Israel to spring forth, and I will open your mouth to speak in their midst. Then they will know again that I am the Lord." I say this every time we get into the study, but here's the reoccurring verse, 54 times. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And we're getting closer and closer to um, uh, where we are in time. Between We're living between chapters 37 and 38 as I speak this evening. That's only a couple of weeks away, and we'll be, we'll be getting there. But tonight the focus, and I will do a little sidetrack because these chapters really are very redundant, very repetitive. 
saying the same thing, Egypt to be destroyed. Like Tyre, there's a whole chapter given to a lamentation or a weeping over it. One chapter uh, directed to um, uh, Pharaoh himself. And um, so as we get into it, I will be mentioning a little bit of its of its history and uh, the many times that it does appear. But I think for starters, I'm just going to, we're going to start with a little background. Let's go back to, I mentioned it's um, mentioned 612 times in the Bible. Let me take you to the very first place Egypt is mentioned. We need to go back to the book of Genesis chapter 12. It's interesting because I was reading this today and how similar Isaac is like his father. But let's pick it up, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land, and uh, there shall be built an altar to the Lord who has appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. He built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abraham journeyed going on still towards the south, so he's on the move. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt. This is the very first time Egypt is mentioned in the Bible. There was never famine in Egypt because of the Nile River. It flooded every year. It is is fertile, and it was the breadbasket, and it could always be counted on. That's why it was um, so unique when Pharaoh had the dream and Joseph had the dream of seven years of of drought and famine. That was unheard of. And yet that's exactly what came to pass and that's exactly how Joseph came to such a prominent position. But here in verse 10, we find that Abraham is going down to sojourn there because the the, the famine was severe. we um, We think of Naomi and Elimelech, and how Naomi goes to Moab because of the famine in Bethlehem. And uh, so evidently there was travel. If there was, if, if there was famine somewhere, they would go to Moab. In this case, Abraham is going down to Egypt. came to pass when he came close to entering Egypt, they must have had checkpoints, that he said to Sarah, his wife, Indeed, I know you're a woman of a beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they'll kill me, but they will let you live. Pharaoh took pretty much whatever he wanted. And he says, Please say, you're my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abraham came to Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. And the princes of Pharaoh who saw her commended her to Pharaoh. And they just said, we just saw this most this gorgeous woman, and she'd fit nicely into your harem. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. And he treated Abraham well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. And so because of uh, uh, Sarah's beauty, he says, how do you tell you what? Why? <laughs> you're going to be taken into the harem of Pharaoh. And um, 
uh, he's getting all these riches and rewards for doing so and doesn't say a word. And um, in verse 17, the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with a great plague because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And Pharaoh called Abraham and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your, was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here, she's your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So he kept his possessions. Now, Isaac pulls the same thing as he goes down to Egypt, and... Um, uh, he tells the same story, tell him you're my sister and so on and so forth. But the Pharaoh was looking out of his window one day and it says he, he saw Isaac sporting with um, his wife. In other words, they were, they were being affectionate. Use your imagination, whatever. But he figured out real quick that it wasn't his sister and he called him on it. He said, why did you say he was your sister? Um, I saw what was going on today. That's not your sister. And, but like, evidently, like father, like son. And uh, we can turn there quickly. It's Genesis chapter 26. Um, picking it up in verse 2. Now we have 26 verse 2. Again, there was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went up to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines in Gear, and the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I tell you. So it's a good thing I turned here because I said it was Pharaoh, but it's not. He's in Abimelech, and here the Lord is saying, Don't go to Egypt, but sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you for all you and your descendants. I give all these lands, and I will perform an oath which I swore to Abraham your father. Um... Let me skim down. So Isaac dwelt, verse 6, in uh, Gerar. And the men of the place asked him about his wife, and he said, and she, and she is my sister, <laughs> like, my, like father, like son. For he was afraid to say she is my wife because he thought lest the men of this place would kill me for Rebekah because she is beautiful to behold. And it came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. And so the king calls him out and he said, quite obviously, she's not, she's your wife. So how could you say she's my sister? And Isaac said to him, lest I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this that you've done to us? One of the people might have lain with your wife, and your guilt would have been upon us. So, like father, like son, and um, he's told in this case not to go down to Egypt. The next prominent place that we find is in chapter 37, really from 37. Boy, I wish I could get sidetracked on this. The major part of the book of Genesis. 37 to 50, is all about Joseph. Joseph is a type of Jesus 110 times. So when Jesus said, search the scriptures because it's all about me, if you do an in-depth study on, on Joseph, 
uh, rejected by his, his brothers. Um, just, just over and over again, the, the, um, the types that Joseph, 110 times, he's a type of uh, Jesus. And of course, because of the famine, because he was betrayed by his own kinsmen, falsely accused, eventually, given the gift of interpretation of dreams, he interprets Pharaoh's dream accurately, the seven years of, of plenty followed by the seven years of, of drought. And, and the Pharaoh asked for advice about what to do. He said, well, you better find yourself a smart guy uh, to oversee this whole project. And Pharaoh said, who else is smarter than you, Joseph? You got the job. And he says, next to me, there will be nobody who has more authority or more power in all of the world than you. And so 37, all the way to the end of the book of Genesis, is stories about Joseph in Egypt. Then it goes on to tell us that um, Jacob, his father, uh, was told that Joseph was alive. He's in Egypt. So the whole family, 70 in all, moved to uh, Goshen. Uh, the Pharaoh gave him the best of the land, showing great favoritism towards the Hebrews. But then the Bible says there arose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. And uh, the fondness that was shown to the, the, the people in Goshen Slowly over time, it came worse and worse and worse and worse. And they went from being um, people of respect and prominence to slaves that were there only to um, make bricks for the cities of the Pharaoh. And that takes us um, through the 400 years of bitter bondage until the time of Moses bringing them out of Egypt. And we talked a lot about that this last, <clears throat> this last Sunday. Egypt eventually fell to the Assyrians. And then, um, uh, and then eventually it was defeated at Ben again by Alexander the Great. So let's go back to... With that much of a background, let's go back to um, Ezekiel 30. And that's just a little history. There's four chapters. Like I said, it's mentioned 612 times in the Bible. So I just want to refresh your memory just a little bit, especially the first book of the Bible, that many chapters given to Joseph in his time in Egypt. Uh, chapter 30, verse 1, the word of or, the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, thus, thus says the Lord God, Wail, woe to the day, explanation point. For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds and a time of the Gentiles. A sword shall come upon Egypt. And anguish shall be in Ethiopia when the slain fall in Egypt, and they will take away her wealth and her foundations are broken down, Ethiopia, Libya, Lydia, and all the um, mingled people, the Chud, and all the men of the lands who are allied shall fall with them by the sword. <clears throat> For thus says the Lord, 
Those who uphold Egypt will fall, and the pride of her power shall come down. From Magdal to Serene, those within her shall fall by the sword, says the Lord God. Uh, they shall be desolate in the midst of the desolate countries. All her cities shall be in the midst of the cities, will be laid waste. And then they will know that I am the Lord. When I have set a fire in Egypt, and all her helpers are destroyed, on that day messengers will go forth uh, from me in ships uh, to make the careless Ethiopians afraid. So Ethiopia obviously was an ally but they're terrified because now Egypt has fallen and now they're coming after the Ethiopians and great anguish shall come upon them as on the day of Egypt, for indeed it is coming. Uh, For thus says the Lord God, I will also make a multitude of Egypt to cease by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So let's keep it in context. Jerusalem has fallen. We've just gotten through Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It finally fell. Now everything they said was true. Now Nebuchadnezzar turns for world conquest and um, he's going to the surrounding countries including Ethiopia and Egypt and the ones we mentioned earlier. All by the hand of uh, Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon. He and his people with him, the host tremble of the nations shall be brought to destroy the land. They shall draw their sword against Egypt, and the land will, with the slain, I will make the rivers dry and sell the land into the hand of the wicked. I will make the land waste and all that is in it. By the hand of aliens, I, the Lord, have spoken it. Now I'm going to get a little sidetracked here in verse 13. Verse 13, thus says the Lord God, I will also destroy the idols and cause the images to cease from Nop, N-O-P-H. Now, Nop was known as Nop then, but today it is known as Memphis. And Memphis was known for its tremendous amount of idols. I'm going to put up on a screen where Memphis is in reference to the Nile Delta. You'll notice that it's close to Cairo. And it says, There shall no longer be princes from the land of Egypt. I will put fear in the land of Egypt. But here we have one city that I want to point out. Um, And I mention it because I've been there. And when I was reading and studying about this today, that all the idols of Memphis were laid waste, what Memphis was known for in its day was rolls upon rolls upon rolls of these idols that would line the streets of Memphis. Now, on one of our trips to Israel, we, uh, we went to the pyramids, we went to Memphis. And this would have been in the 90s, I guess, because what we went online today. Uh, matter of fact, right before the study, I, I asked Thomas if he could pull up just type in the statue of Ramses in Memphis, Egypt. And sure enough, we found two pictures that I wanted. The first one I'm going to show you is, is a picture of Ramses. Go ahead and put it up. Lying on his back. This is the only thing that's left of Memphis. Now, that's the way that I saw it in the 90s. 
evidently what they did is the same thing that if you've been to Israel with us and they found that um, first century boat at Nafgenazar, and for years it was just in a, a container like maybe 12 by 8 in a special liquid. And then now they have a whole museum built around this first century boat. Well, today, notice I said boat because I'm from Wisconsin. Okay, so now you go from this. This is what it looks like today. It's the same statue. So they now, because it's, this is Ramses the fifth, and um, this is the only one that's left. I remember the bus driver pulling over, us getting out, and walking around this thing. And it's got to be at least 30, 40 feet tall. And uh, so this is the way it looks today. That's not the way it looked then. It was just uh, laying alongside the road. And um, I bring it up because uh, verse 13 says, I will destroy the idols of Noth, and they were many. The city was known for its many statues. This is the only one that's left. And... um, and it's a tour, basically a tourist attraction today. Um, I will make the land waste. Um, I will destroy their idols. And I will cause the images of Noth, and they will be no more a place in the land of Egypt, and I will put fear in the land. And he talks about the images being laid waste here. All right, let's make our way up to verse 15, and I want to talk a little bit about their superstitions and their fears, especially of death, and how preoccupied they were with the afterlife. So let's get back to verse 14. I will make Pathros desolate, set fire to Zoan, execute judgment, and no. I will pour out my fury on Sin. Yeah, there really was a city named Sin. The strength of Egypt. I will cut off the multitudes of No. And set fire in Egypt. Uh, Sin shall have great pain and there shall, no more shall be split open. And uh, Na for Memphis shall be in distress daily. The young men of Avon and Pi-Beshesh shall fall by the sword. And these cities will all go into captivity. Now in verse 15, these verses here, again, are very repetitive. Now they're going city by city, what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do. Verse 18, I will break the yoke of Egypt, and her arrogant strength shall be from her. As for her, a cloud shall cover her, and her daughters shall go into captivity. And I will execute judgment on Egypt, then they shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, so they're going to be taken um, into captivity. As we studied last uh, Sunday, we have the time length here of 40 years. And that they would return after the 40 years back. And so here's a reference again of... um, Verse 18, them being taken into captivity, I'll execute judgment on Egypt. But they'll never again return to that place of glory like Memphis once had with the pharaohs and the history of, um, of um, Egypt goes from the pharaohs 
all the way up to about 30 BC with uh, Cleopatra. Cleopatra was um, the last reigning one when it was conquered by Rome. Of course, you know the great love story between her and Mark Anthony. Those, that's all fact of history. We'll get to it again when we get to Daniel chapter 11. But um, the history of um, the history of the pharaohs primarily was 3,150. So if you want a time reference there, David um, was king of, of Israel, and um, that would have been 3,000 years ago for us. Uh, and uh, so this would predate David. And um, I think it said they had 170 pharaohs, 25 of them very prominent. I mentioned that when we went to Cairo, the only thing we were seeing when it said it's the lowliest of kingdoms, it is the filthiest city I've ever seen. But what it had was one of the greatest museums in the world. And um, King Tut's um, um, tomb was found. And it, it's really... Uh, quite a thing to um, behold that museum and I'm going to talk more about that when we get into chapter 31 because it talks about more in the afterlife and they're being so infatuated with it. All right, verse 20, it came to pass in the 11th year in the first month and the seventh day of the month that the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And see, it has not been bandaged uh, for healing, nor a splinter put on it to bind it, to make it strong enough to hold the sword. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I will break his arms, both the strong one and the one that was broken, and I will make the sword fall out of his hand. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations, disperse them throughout the countries, I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, and I will put my sword in his hand, and will break Pharaoh's arm, and he will groan before me with the groanings of a mortal wounded man. And thus I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh shall fall down, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he stretches it out against the land of Egypt." I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations, disperse them throughout the countries, and then they shall know that I am the Lord. One of the things that amazes me about God's word is how he can take chapter after chapter and basically say the same thing, and yet completely in different um, structure form. It makes me think of Psalm 119. We were having breakfast this morning, and I was reading Wisdom for Today, and I saw my wife, she was reading, I said, what are you reading? She said, Psalm 119. And I said, well, the thing about, that amazes me about Psalm 119, it's the longest of all the Psalms in the Bible, but except for two of the verses, every one of them says something about the Word of God. Every single verse. Either it's the Word, statutes, laws, ordinances, and um, every verse except for two has something to say about God's word. And I'm sort of flashing on that here because we're reading four chapters that are basically saying the same thing. I'm going to use Nebuchadnezzar to destroy this mighty 
Egyptian empire. And he takes four chapters, basically, to say the same thing and who he's going to use uh, to do it. Brings us to chapter 31, where I'm going to make my way up to uh, verse 15. And then I want to do a little sidetrack and show you some... um, um, some pictures of the museum in Cairo. Chapter 31, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the eleventh year, in the third month, and the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt and his multitudes, Whom are you like in your greatness? Indeed, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, with fine branches that shaded the forest, and of high statue, and its top was among the thick boughs. The waters made it grow, underground waters gave it height, with her rivers running around the place where it was planted, sent out all the revolutes to all the trees of the field. Therefore, its height was exalted above all the trees of the field. Now, I remember when we were there, they were ingenious, by taking the water, and they had their own pumping systems that they had to, for, for their irrigation to get their, their water from the Nile to go as far as really as they wanted it to, a very ingenious irrigation system. And as a result here, you have this uh, very, very fertile area. Its, its boughs were multiplied, and its branches became long because of the abundance of water. And it sent them out. All the birds of heaven made their nests at its boughs. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field brought forth their young. And in its shadow, all great nations made their home. Abraham went there when it was a famine in the land. And thus it was beautiful in greatness and the length of its branches because its roots reached to the abundant water. The cedars in the garden of God could not hide it. The fir trees were not like its boughs and the chestnut tree was not like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was like it in beauty. I made it beautiful with a multitude of branches so that all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have increased in height and set it among the thick boughs and its heart was lifted up in its height, therefore I will deliver you into the hand of the mighty one of the nations and he shall surely deal with it I have driven it out from its wickedness, and aliens and the most terrible of the nations have cut it down and left it. Its branches have fallen, and the mountains and all the valleys, its boughs lie broken by all the rivers of the land, and all the peoples of the earth have gone from under its shadow and left it. On its ruins will remain all the birds of the heavens, and the beasts of the fields will come to its branches." so that no trees by the waters may ever again exalt themselves uh, for their height, nor set their tops among the thick boughs, that no tree which drinks water may ever be high enough to reach up to them. For they have all been delivered to death, to the depths of the earth among the children of men who go down to the pit. All right. Just... Before we continue our study here, I want you to turn with me to Daniel, which is the next book over. And everything that we just read here is about 
Egypt being likened to this tree, and it's so prosperous that it takes care of everybody else. And, uh, but with it came this pride and arrogance of their pomp. Now, the thing that I find most interesting about this is the instrument that God is using is King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one that's going to cut down the tree. But what happens to Nebuchadnezzar is that he has his own dream. Daniel interprets it, and um, he's troubled by it, and Daniel gives the interpretation of the dream, and um, he doesn't like it because the dream is basically saying, you're the head of gold, but you're going to be overcome by the Medes and the Persians, by another empire, less inferior to you. Silver is inferior to gold. The Medo-Persian Empire in the statue is made of silver. But what's interesting to me is in defiance to what the Lord had said, Nebuchadnezzar builds his own image of gold, not of silver and iron and clay, and he basically says, over my dead body, you know, is this not, uh, he was walking over the um, um, uh, city of Babylon one day, he was gloating, he says, look how beautiful this is, I mean, this, these, <laughs> these hanging gardens of Babylon, he didn't know it, will some be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world? And it actually was. The Hanging Garden of Babylon was one of the ancient wonders, seven ancient wonders of the ancient world. And, and he says, is not this what I have done? Haven't I done all this for my glory? And the Bible tells us that the words weren't even out of his mouth when an angel uh, came to him and, um, and smote him Let's see if I can find the exact verse here because I didn't write it down. Anyway, when we get to chapter 4, we find that he has a dream. And this is now the second dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. And um, in verse 13, he said, I saw the vision in my head while on my bed, and there were the watchers, the holy one, coming down from heaven. And they say, cut down the tree and its branches, Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots and bind it with iron and bronze and in the tender grass of the fields and let dew be wet upon it and let him gaze graze with the beasts of the earth and let his heart be changed from that of a man and let him be given the heart of an animal and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, plural, there's a trinity, in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men. Nebuchadnezzar. Now here, here's the irony of all this. Egypt is, is being cut down in size, so to speak. That's what 31 is all about. Likened to a tree. But he says, I'm going to cut you down even though you're so fertile and you take care of everybody, everybody else in the world that the birds come and nest in it? This is exactly the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And my point is that the instrument that the Lord used to defeat Egypt, he is now going to do the same thing because he glorified himself 
instead of the Lord. And as a result, um, he, he is a tree that's going to be cut down to size. And we find all of chapter 4, Daniel comes in in verse 19 and begins to give the interpretation of the vision. And um, let me just cut to the quick with this Nebuchadnezzar's restoration. After seven months, seven seasons, seven years, I don't know. It just says seven times. And the interpretation, I'm not going to be dogmatic. It could be seven cycles of summer or seven seasons, I don't know. It was a period of time where his fingernails grew long, he didn't wash, he lived like a wild beast, and he thought like a wild beast. But then it says he came to his senses after that period of time. So all of chapter 4 is King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful dictator that the world has ever known. Um, give you an example. If Nebuchadnezzar said it was Tuesday and it was really Monday, well, it became Tuesday. The Medes and the Persians couldn't have that decree. And that happened when, um, when they tried to throw Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, the way they got away with it is they told a lie about Daniel. The king gave a decree, and once the king gave a decree, um, it couldn't be changed. He couldn't change it himself. What's your point, Dwight? Nebuchadnezzar had more authority as a dictator than Darius and Cyrus and, and, the, and the rulers of the Medo-Persian Empire. They were inferior so what do we have in chapter four, but the personal, everybody here that's been born again, you have your story, how you met Jesus, and you give your personal testimony. And here we read in the first couple of verses, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all people's nations who dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders of the most high God who has worked for me. Oh, how great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Now, that's an important verse for Nebuchadnezzar. But he was saying, no, my kingdom's gonna last forever, kingdom of gold. But he was cut down his eyes. And he was, the, the, the dream that he had was he was the tree that the birds were resting in, and the Lord cut him down his eyes. I'm not gonna read the whole chapter except the last verse. And that's verse 37, where he comes to his senses, he's restored back to the throne. Let's pick it up in verse 36. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor, and my splendor returned to me, my counselors and nobles restored to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and my excellent majesty was added to me. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven, all who, whose works are true and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride, he is able to abase. You ever wonder where you get the term? That guy got cut down his eyes? <laughs> this is where it comes from. Whenever you hear that phrase, well, he got cut down to size. It comes from um, Nebuchadnezzar getting cut down, comes from the king of Egypt, 
uh, as a tree in uh, all of chapter 31. And I got sidetracked with um, the testimony here. Let's go back to 31. Because the last thing we just read in verse 14, so that no trees by the waters may ever exalt themselves for their height, just like Nebuchadnezzar, nor set their tops among the thick boughs that no tree will drink water may ever be high enough to reach them again. Why? For they have all been delivered to death, to the depths of the earth, don't let that escape you, to the depths of the earth they've been delivered, among the children of men who go down into the pit. So here we have a reference to what happens when a person dies. Here a person dies and they're delivered to the depths of the earth. Now this is not something people talk about on a daily basis. And yet it's something that happens every single minute of every single day where a person dies, and they don't give it a whole lot of thought, but death is just the beginning of eternal life. And this is one of the places that it's addressed. I'm not sure where we're going on Sunday, but this might be one of the places. And um, there's a difference. Um, Let me just quote McGee here for a second. Where do the spirits of the lost go? They too go to Sheol, the unseen world. And then he refers of the parable, which is also a true life story, which Jesus told about two men who died, that that Sheol is divided into two compartments. One is called the place of torment. That's where the rich man went. The other is called Abraham's bosom, which is the place where the beggar went when he died. The place of torment is not to be confused with hell or the lake of fire. And this is where we might go on Sunday because there's a difference between all these places. And Gehenna and outer darkness, these are all different from um, references to Sheol. Apparently Sheol was a temporary abode for the dead. As the Lord Jesus emptied the section called paradise, of Abraham's bosom. Now, this is important, what, what McGee just said here. That place was emptied. Um, Hebrews and Ephesians chapter 4 in particular, it said before Jesus ascended, he first descended to the lower parts of the earth and he set the captives free. So he went down, and as Jonah was three days and three nights, in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here we read in verse 14 of 31, to the depths of the earth. What's in the depths of the earth? Well, as I speak tonight, the rich man is still there in Sheol. And he's going to stay there for the next at least 1,007 years. He's totally conscious. He's very aware of his torment, Because before the Lord emptied Abraham's bosom, remember what Jesus said to the thief on the cross? No good works, never baptized, had nothing going for him, except he said, Lord, believe on me. And he said, okay, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Well, we know that Jesus didn't go to heaven until after the resurrection. Remember when Mary latched on to him? 
And uh, the Lord says to Mary, after the resurrection, Mary, don't do that, for I have not yet ascended to my father. He hadn't gone to heaven yet. And yet the day that the thief on the cross died, he says, today you're gonna be with me in paradise. So what's paradise? Paradise is Abraham's bosom. And McGee is right here. That has been emptied, and he quotes Ephesians 4, that before he ascended, he descended, and he set the captives free. By the way, that's also a prophecy from Isaiah 61. One of the, the works that Jesus would do um, while, while he was here. And um, so apparently Sheol was a temporary abode for the dead, and the Lord emptied it. This section called the place of torment will not be emptied until all those who will stand before the great white throne judgment. Well, the great white throne judgment doesn't happen until after the 1,000-year millennial reign. I was talking to a friend just recently about the denomination that I grew up in. They don't believe uh, in the millennium. They don't believe in the rapture. They believe we're living, (laughs) if you can believe this, we're living in the kingdom age right now. And I always like to say, if we're living in the kingdom age right now, I'm really, really disappointed. And I ask him, just think it through. Just think of the prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And he asks the question, do you really believe that the lion is laying down with the lamb right now? No. Is there peace reigning on the earth? Is, Is this the kingdom of God right now? No, it's not. Well, then, the denomination that I grew up in, I call them amillennial. That means they don't believe in a literal 1,000-year reign, neither do they believe in the rapture. So my question is a simple one. What are you going to do with the prayer? I mean, if you want to start at that base, at that level. I mean, common sense tells us we're not living in the kingdom age right now. Somebody want to say amen to that? If you think you are, I'm feeling sorry for you right now. because, you know, it's just the opposite. The world is getting worse and worse, not better and better. And that's what the scripture says. These are are the beginnings of sorrows the, the Lord talks about. So the Egyptians were preoccupied with death. And from the time one pharaoh I found out today that they intermarried within their own family quite a bit so that they could keep the title and they could keep their tombs growing. And of course, the Great Pyramids are nothing more than, than, than tombs. I've been inside one of them. Um, let me just, I pulled out this today and they of course are, were caught up with not just superstition, but they were very much in tune with the occult. They were very much, their book was called The Book of the Dead. Well, I researched it today. The Book of the Dead is not one book. It's many manuscripts of spells, directions of what to do after you die. After you die, you are you're put, um, your body is mummified, 
if you're prominent, like one of the pharaohs, with the idea of once you've made it past death and you enter the afterlife, that you'll know what to do. And of course, none of this is true, but it's what they, they believed in their worship. So I have four pages here in the Book of the Dead and, and what it is. And so basically their belief was, um, and when I was, when was in Cairo and we went to the museum, I actually saw these two items that I'm gonna put up on the screen. It was, they're in the museum. The first one here is a chariot. <laughs> um, when they found it in the sarcophagus, it was taken apart. So basically all they did here was put it together. The question is, why is it there? The answer is to get around once you're in, in the afterlife. The next one is a picture of a ship. Now there's many other things, including great wealth that were in like King Tut's tomb uh, and other, other pharaohs. But this is a boat, a boat. <laughs> and um, what, what was it there for? Well, it was put there because once you come through life and you come through to the other side, then uh, you have a means of transportation. I will liken this to my visits to India, which I have been to every state in India, and reincarnation in Hinduism is a basic lie of the devil. This is nothing more than a lie of the devil. Only uh, in Egypt, uh, when you die, you have, this, is your, this is what happens. You don't come back like they teach in reincarnation in Hinduism, um, and you have good karma and bad karma and all that sort of stuff. No. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. And Jesus said he's the only way, the truth, and the life. These are um, deceptions. What the devil always does, instead of having the book of, book of the dead, what does the Bible have? Well, the book of life. And in it are names written of all those who will be part of it. So what does Lucifer do? He can't come up with anything new. He just copies and counterfeits the real deal. So what we have, and he has a whole culture that's given over to this belief. And uh, they follow it. In India, it's, re- it's reincarnation. And they have the caste system in, in, um, in Egypt. And it's a culture like none I've ever seen before. Because... It's even affected the church in the same way that our culture is affecting the church today. In India, the caste system is basically four classes of people. And the upper class, they would be the Brahmas, the religious gurus, they're they're top notch. Then you have the sophisticated, educated, upper class, middle class, and then you have the untouchables. They're called the Dals. They're the lower class. And uh, they're good for cleaning out your toilet, cleaning out um, uh, the garbage. You are simply born into this cassette, and there's nothing you can do about it until you die. Now, if you, if you get your act together and you have good karma during your first life and you die, well, you come back maybe not as a Dalit and a lower class, but you might come up to middle class. You might one day even make it... Um, to, um, you know, utopia and be one with the gods. What is that? It's called a lie. How far back does it go? To the garden. Eat this and guess what? 
you can be like God. And he doesn't just, he just changes it from culture to culture. In Egypt, it's just as a lie. There's nothing when you die, you die. And you go, uh, as it says, down to the pit. Uh, verse 15, let's pick it up. Thus says the Lord God, in that day when I went down to hell, I caused mourning and I covered the deep because of it. I restrained its waters and the great waters were held back. I caused Lebanon to mourn for it and all the trees of the field wilted because of it. I wanted to get a little sidetracked on, on this because um, only the word of God holds the truth when it comes to what happens to you after you die. Um, we were listening to a program this morning. It was Jay Seeger. I was listening to Jay. And he was towards, you know, he's basically just presenting the gospel so crystal clear. And um, simply, you know, what would happen if you died today? Would you go to heaven or hell? What would your answer be? And some have the typical, you know, the typical answer. Well, I wasn't that bad of a guy. I was kind of good sometimes. And um, thinking that God judges on a curve. And um, then Jay said when he got to heaven and, and he was confronted, how do, how, what right do you have to enter heaven? And he lays his, his rap out and didn't, didn't make it. Another guy comes in and says, well, I deserve to be in hell, but I received Jesus Christ who died for my sins on a cross at my place. I deserve to go to hell, but I'm here in heaven today because he took my sin and he gave me his righteousness. And that is the only way, and that's the truth about what happens with life and death. We don't like to talk about death. And yet, it's something you're never going to be able to avoid. How did we start our Bible study tonight? Prayed for Charlene's comfort, because her mother died today. We prayed for Nancy and her comfort. Why? Because her father died today. Every day, somebody's dying, and if the Lord doesn't come for the rapture, guess what? Bible says, be wise. Lord, teach me to number my days. Because your life is a vapor. Solomon says it's like a flower. It's like grass. It's beautiful for just a little bit of time, and then it withers away, and it's gone. But then what? Well, death is only the beginning of eternity. When I do a funeral, I tell everybody, everybody here is living forever. That's not the issue. You are going to live forever. You're, You're a soul. You have a spirit. This is a tent. But I'm in here somewhere. You're in there somewhere. And that's eternal. So it's not a question of do I have eternal life? It's where do I spend eternal life? And what does the Bible have to say about it? Well, verse 15 says, In that day when I went down to hell, I caused mourning. And uh, the, the rulers of Egypt go to the depths of the earth. Well, let's finish it off with that because um, I want to take you one more place. I'm already at my time. So I will make the nations shake at the sound of its fall and cast it down to hell together. And those who descend into the pit and all the trees of Eden and the choice of the best of Lebanon and all the drinks water were comforted in the depths of the earth. 
They also went down to hell with it, and those slain by the sword and those who were its strong arm dwelt in the shadows among the nations, to which the trees in Eden will then be likened in glory and greatness. Yet you will be brought down with the trees of Eden to the depths of the earth. You shall lie in the midst of the uncircumcised and those who are slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, says the Lord God. Turn to, in one more verse, Zechariah, right before the last book of the Bible, Malachi, chapter 14. We started with saying that uh, Egypt is mentioned 612 times in the scriptures. We find here it's being judged because of its arrogance and its pomp and it being cut down to size and what happened to them after they died. But I want you to know that Egypt, during the millennial reign, is still in existence and is mentioned. So this is one, if you're in Zechariah chapter 14, uh, when the Lord talks about the nations that remain. Egypt is mentioned. So even though it, Tyre said it will never be rebuilt again, here we have Egypt being restored and even people during the millennial reign living in Egypt. So picking up at verse 16, the setting is the millennial reign, literally a thousand year reign. It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, of them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter it, they shall have no rain. And they shall receive the plagues which the Lord struck the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember it says he will rule the nations with what? A rod of iron. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of the nations that do not keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And that day holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses, the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowl before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judea will be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook them in them. And that day there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. So we made it through chapter 29, 30, and 31. And we did not make it to chapter 32. And my wife's going to tell me when I get done, if you wouldn't tell all those side stories, you could have got through all four chapters. <laughs> but that's usually the way it works out. But we'll, we'll pick it up next week. Let's stand and we'll close in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. And... Um, Lord, as we study your scriptures, uh, we see that um, you hate pride. And as proud as Nebuchadnezzar was, you showed him grace and you humbled him and you cut him down to size. And then he gave his own personal testimony. And he admitted that those who walk in pride that you're able to deal with. And then you tell us the truth about what happens to us after we move out of this tent. 
It's heaven or hell, and only time can tell whether or not um, we have that certainty. But I thank you for your word that tells us that um, these things are written, that we might know that we have eternal life. And Lord, we can take comfort in the fact that we have certainty that when it comes to us passing from this life into the next one, that by the authority of your word, that we have eternal life with you. And for that we rejoice, and we were reminded again once again tonight. But what's not being proclaimed today is what we studied here this evening, the eternal shame that will be upon those who will have to live with themselves, by themselves, throughout all eternity. Lord, help this stir our heart that we would be bothered with the thought that anybody would ever have to enter this place. And so we thank you that your word uh, speaks the truth on all these issues. So Lord, as we go out tonight, we pray you bless our fellowship, and we pray you go out before us the rest of this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.